0: Day by day, Russia seems to be turning back the clock to darker times. Pick the worst periods of Russian history and you will find echoes of them in the present day, whether they be the economic and mafia chaos of the 90s, the privations and exceptionalism of the Soviet period, nuclear threat of the Cold War era, or Stalin's repressions and purges even the slaughter of World War II, 19th century poverty, or unrelenting imperial expansionism of Ivan the Terrible's time. There are echoes of all of these in the events that are unfolding. In its political mythology, and with its weaponized education system, Russia is a country whose focus is on the past more than the future. And daily it reminds us why looking forward can sometimes be far healthier than looking backwards. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce and our material is now available on popular podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Dr. Yuri Felschinsky is a prominent author, historian and journalist, an expert on Russia and the former Soviet Union. He has appeared in print, TV and radio interviews worldwide and is widely known as the co-author of the book Blowing Up Russia with Alexander Litvinenko, a former lieutenant colonel in the FSB who was poisoned with radioactive polonium in London in 2006. His latest book, Blowing Up Ukraine, The Return of Russian Terror and the Threat of World War III, was researched before the invasion of Ukraine and is the first comprehensive investigation into the legal lethal methods Russia has used since 1999 to take over Ukraine, culminating in the full-blown unprovoked war in 2022 and the mounting atrocities from that. More recently, he has warned of the risk of a nuclear strike from the territory of Belarus, and it's this topic of strategic nuclear blackmail that we'll be discussing today. Yuri, welcome to the channel, and um, I'm delighted that you agreed to appear again. It is now the third time, so if people enjoy this, then they should definitely go back and uh, check our previous two conversations as well. Thank you. Well, it comes on... An extraordinary week i think last time we spoke was shortly after the assassination of daria Dugina, and here just yesterday we have uh vladlin Tatarski. Tar- uh, i think his Tartarsky. name is <laughs> uh, and this really is a, a horrific echo of the 90s isn't it i mean that's the period where i was studying russian uh, in st petersburg and these kind of uh you know assassinations explosions Mafia rivalry seem to happen with some regularity, and it's got a horrible echo of those times, hasn't it?
1: Well, I have to say that Tatarsky actually is not his real name, and Vladlin. I do not know if you understand this or not. Probably you do understand. That. Vladlin is a name made out of Vladimir Lenin. Vlad lenin right so uh he's not a very good person uh to be honest uh he was uh, killed and uh this was an act of individual terror uh several other people were wounded but he was the only person who was killed uh many people are asking now the same question or questions, if this is done by the Russian government, if this is done by GRU, if this is done by the FSB. uh, uh, We do not have all information we need, not not yet. My intuition tells me that we are dealing with, uh, we are dealing with individual terror in, in Russia. And the reason for this is the following. Uh, starting 2000, uh Putin uh and and the FSB with which he was working together basically destroyed any possibility for opposition, for any opposition. And uh by now you do not really have political parties in Russia who are opposing Putin, you do not have Uh, organizations which are allowed to be in opposition to Putin, you are actually not able to walk outside your house with a sign, no war, and especially you're not allowed to do this if uh, this is more than one person. My point is that the only form of opposition now which is left uh, is uh, individual terror and i think that we are going to see it more and more often both uh in russia and in ukraine because all all other forms of opposition are actually controlled by the fsb and destroyed by the fsb mainly on preventive level but when we deal with very small group of individuals like one two three uh people right who who decided that they, you know they're obliged to oppose the war and they look for the possible form of this opposition uh to go outside a, and hold as you know slogan no war make no sense because they simply will put you in prison anyway uh, and will beat you on the way uh, so they probably, uh, you know, some of those people probably are thinking that it's time to decide to do something more decisive. And uh, that's why that's why I think we will see uh, more and more protests like this.
0: And in the manner it's carried out, in the organizational requirements, if we compare this to, say, the poisoning of the Skripals, if we compare this to the assassination of Nimtsov, those two acts would have required a significant amount of planning, uh, which potentially couldn't have been done by one individual that may have required many, many individuals. The poisoning of Navalny, I think similarly, would have required a team of people and deep preparation. Do you think this assassination this weekend is something that could have been planned by you know one individual or just a small number of people with relatively little investment of time and resource?
1: Well, uh, in those cases which you mentioned, we are dealing, of course, with government, right? Which was behind the, the operations, right? Uh, poisoning of Skripal, poison of Navalny, killing of Nemtsov. Uh This uh, this is also uh, important to understand that no one actually was ever punished for those crimes, right? In case of Nimtsov, we probably do not have people, uh, you know, named, right? In case of uh, Navalny, we know who was involved, in case of Skripal, we know who who were involved, but, uh, but it's not that they were arrested and prosecuted and sentenced for crimes committed. Uh, Here, of course, we have a woman uh, who was arrested and was named by the FSB as the person responsible. Uh, uh, Well, it demanded certain organization. I think this bomb should be prepared probably by somebody who knew how to do this. Uh, Again, the way it was organized, I would say, Uh, was very, uh, you know, professional, because again, uh, this was not, a, a, a dumb bomb which would explore and destroy everybody who's around uh, it was directed against one particular individual uh you probably would have to know where that person would be a, a particular day in particular time but since this was a kind of entertainment uh, which uh, he would provide to the crowd, Uh, it was known when and where he would be at a particular moment uh, of his life. So, but again, I think we are dealing uh, with a protest. This is protest against the war. The person who was killed, uh, I mean, really, he was a terrible guy. What he was saying about Ukraine, what he was saying about Ukrainians, what he was saying about uh, how, you Know they should be killed, etc. etc. Uh, uh, I mean, this, this was not uh, you know, good at all. Uh, so it's not that we are going to miss him, uh, we are not. Uh, and uh, I think the punishment, you know, was well deserved, uh, but uh since we are talking about uh, war which is already taking place, you know, for for longer than one year. But my point is that this is happening because there is no other way for people to protest against the war. And uh, if we want to look into history, what I try not to do very often, although I'm a historian, Russia was actually famous for its... uh, Revolutionary terror in the beginning of twentieth century, where sometimes you know this is a entire cabinet of ministers ministers would be executed by by terrorists, and uh, this this was, by the way, a very important part of the struggle against the government. And if uh, if Putin's Russia would start to face this kind of level. Uh, Of individual terror, as this uh, might be very painful.
0: And of course, I mean, for those who haven't been to St. Petersburg, there's a magnificent cathedral on one of the embankments, isn't there, Um, which marks the spot. Spasna Kraví, which one of the one of the tsars, Alexander II, was assassinated in the in the eighteen eighties. So yes, it's not uh, not unusual in Russian history for not just uh, politicians, but also you know the people at the very top to be. uh, that's right and
1: uh, Russian Prime Minister uh, Peter Stalipin was actually killed by a terrorist in Kiev, by the way, uh, in 1911. So uh, now terrorists actually took took down a, a lot of famous politicians uh, in in Russia.
0: And Mikhail Padeljak, who um... Uh, You know, has some very uh, colorful words often. Uh, He's described the situation as spiders in a jar, eating each other. And of course, whenever a senior Ukrainian official comments, there is a lot of speculation that somehow Ukraine may have been involved. Do you think it improbable that there is Ukrainian involvement in this case?
1: Uh, I believe Ukrainians were not involved at all, and uh, the FSB, by the way, the Russian government also named Navalny and his organization. uh, And this is like a very peaceful, by the way, just foundation of Navalny uh, being behind this, and this I have to exclude as well. Uh, Ukrainians, it's not that Ukrainians are not capable to conduct act of terrorism, individual terror. In Russia, they probably would be able to do s- to a certain degree uh, if they uh, wish to to take somebody down. But they usually do it inside Ukraine on occupied territories. There are a lot of people who collaborate with the Russian uh, occupational forces, and from time to time we hear that this or that government official. Uh, who is a Russian government official uh, working in Ukraine or former Ukrainian officials who collaborate with uh, Russians, um, they they are killed. So this is happening in Ukraine, but this is happening in Ukraine and it's much, of course, I would say easier for Ukrainians to organize it within Ukrainian borders. Uh, instead of sending somebody to St. Petersburg, uh, which takes you know a lot of uh, time and energy and much more complicated to arrange.
0: And of course, neither Ukrainians nor probably uh, Russians care too much about the sort of administrators or collaborators who are being taken out by Ukraine. It's... Uh, doesn't cause quite such a stir as as uh, these acts Correct. on on Russian territory. Um, and I, in this sort of segment, in this topic, I think sort of the last question I'm going to ask about this is about the monopoly of violence. Because one thing that Putin was able to do, certainly in the first part of his uh, his reign, was to uh, you know reestablish the state as a, you know having a monopoly over over violence. But do you think that has been ceded? Or has that happened already a long time ago uh, with Kadyrov and uh, Prigozhin and others?
1: Well, what we would uh, expect, of course, is that the longer this war continues, uh, you have uh, more people who are trained to, to kill. You see, and they ah uh, sooner or later they will start to to go back to you know peaceful life. But we had this uh, phenomena after Soviet- Afghan war when uh, Soviet soldiers were coming back from Afghanistan, and they actually were mainly responsible for major organized crime groups. In Russia, right? Because you know they, they, they knew how to use uh, weapons and uh, they tried to how to say it to earn money through this, right? And that's what we should uh, expect um, uh, as a result of Russian-Ukrainian war. Only probably on a much greater level because you you have more people serving in Ukraine. And it became more, I have to say, cynical, you know, than than, uh, the the Soviet-Afghan war actually was a war between uh, two military groups and there were certain rules and at least Soviet soldiers, they were there and compared to the strict Soviet discipline. What's happening in Ukraine when Prigozhin is... uh, recruiting criminals from uh, Russian prisons uh, when they come back, and we, we already have these cases when they come back from Ukraine and they start to kill in Russia again, uh, because, well, they're still criminals. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's what will backfire, uh, but uh, R- Russia will feel it much later, of course
0: well let's let's turn then to the topic that we mentioned in the intro and that is unpacking the nuclear issue but i think we also have to set some scenes here and i know you you know this is an area you've talked about a lot you talked about it and predicted it i think way back in our first conversation and you know i i hoped and and believed and believed that what you were saying was too shocking and not going to happen but things do seem to be unfolding uh, in the way that you predicted um, with Putin's announcement that he will potentially shift um, part of the nuclear arsenal onto the uh, territory of Belarus. But if we take a step back, does that imply that Belarus is making this decision independently as a partner of Russia, or is it already fully a puppet or vassal state uh, of Putin?
1: Well, uh, i think uh there is no doubt at this point that Lukashenko has no role in making any major decisions and uh we have to say that it's all started in march of 22 actually started a little bit longer than a year ago when Lukashenko withdrew belarus from non proliferation treaty of 1995 and uh that's when putin started to prepare this operation so this is not a sudden decision Uh, this is uh, something which he was preparing to do for the entire year now what's uh, important to understand that the only reason putin left belarus independent is to have it an independent state so he would fire nuclear weapons from independent state uh, of belarus so retaliation would be against belarus and not against the russian federation uh, as always with putin uh, we try to figure out if he is bluffing or not if he is blackmailing or this is for real and uh I have to tell you that we had the same dilemma in February of 22, prior to his invasion of Ukraine, and some people were thinking and hoping that this is just a bluff, that he's trying to force Ukraine to do this or that, but he would never invade. Um, I was in uh, belonging to a minority, I have to say, who were claiming that Putin uh, would wait and uh, indeed the, the book uh, blowing up ukraine actually the first edition of it was published in russian and ukrainian uh in ukraine in 19 uh in 2015. so uh the if we were talking now about bluff or blackmail then putin uh would uh these nuclear weapons to Kaliningrad region, because from for for blackmailing or to frighten Europe, it would be uh, much better to to position it there. Kaliningrad region is actually deep inside western europe and from there it would be very easy for this uh, kind of tactical nuclear weapons which he is planning to to move to belarus uh, to to get to any country including you know portugal and norway and poland and lithuania but instead he is moving it to belarus and uh now lukashenko uh Already stated several times uh, that the main enemy of Belarus uh, somehow uh, are Poland and Lithuania, uh, and and unfortunately that's what we should expect. So the, my my problem is that. If there are any red lines, and recently after war started uh, against Ukraine, uh, we uh, mentioned them very often, what would be the re- red line which should not be crossed? The statement about positioning nuclear weapons in Belarus uh, is this red line which is already crossed. Uh, we should not wait for that moment when uh, weapons are delivered to Belarus, because from that moment, it would be a matter of hours before a uh, nuclear strike could be launched. And uh, you know, we know from Lukashenko, again, we know from Lukashenko, it's not that, you know, we are predicting uh, or trying to imagine things. We know that from Lukashenko that uh, Belarusian planes were sent to Moscow some time ago to be modernized. So they would be able to fire missiles with nuclear uh, heads because not not any plane could fire those missiles. Uh, Putin mentioned 1st of July, it's a very strange date. He mentioned 1st of July, is a day by which they should prepare kind of uh, holding places for for nuclear weapons uh what's what is slightly puzzling because you do not really need anything special for those uh, nuclear weapons because it's this this is uh, standard equipment for East countries, which do not need any special, uh, you know, housing, and the same may be said about uh, missiles uh, for for the planes. So uh, I, th- my, my point is that uh, we sh- probably should ignore first of July and think that we could sleep quietly until first of July, and nothing would happen. And my, but and my point is again that the transfer itself might be done very quickly. uh, And if this happens, this might be too late to, to, to react.
0: And what, I mean, if we park the absolute sort of horror and incredulity for a moment, what tactically or strategically does Putin think this move would have does he want a direct confrontation with NATO, or does he think this would shock the world into giving him concessions and coming to the peace talks? What what is what's the outcome he would anticipate from such a move?
1: But here's the point precisely. If he would want to have open confrontation with NATO, he would already have it. Uh he doesn't want to have it. And his idea is that if the strike uh, is made out of Belarus, then of course retaliation would be against Belarus, not against the Russian Federation. And he's correct thinking this. I'm sure that that's precisely how this would happen. Uh, in addition, I have to say that Belarus is compared to, compared to a small state, it's positioned deeply into inside Europe, And the retaliation probably would not be a nuclear retaliation because the you know, in Europe, we have responsible politicians and military leaders, and they probably would be, uh, you know, not willing to risk uh, radiation going uh, you know, outside uh, borders of, uh, of Belarus. So the retaliation probably would be conventional. Uh, it's it's very. It's actually criminal for Lukashenko to agree to this plan because he has to understand that if Belarus would strike against Poland or Lithuania or both, then Belarus might be really destroyed entirely by a conventional retaliation of NATO. And somehow he he is okay with this. And uh, I'm slightly puzzled by the absence of reaction any reaction uh from belarus because again everybody there like state tv state channels of uh, belarusian tv they discuss with smiles how they will destroy poland and lithuania with nuclear strikes that's fine but no one is asking question, well, aren't they going to retaliate? Is Nato going to, to retaliate? And no one is worried somehow uh, about retaliation. What I think is uh, very much uh, in response, uh, you know, unresponsible. And, and course,
0: uh, of, uh, the propagandists, I mean, already a lot of the original propagandists fled, didn't they, uh, during the, the uprising against Lukashenko? so moscow had to reimpose a kind of uh propagandistic order and, and and people were shipped in from moscow i believe
1: right precisely but my point is that it's understandable that putin doesn't care about belarusian putin doesn't care about belarusian people uh we could agree that lukashenko has no power and no voice at all in discussing those things but uh you know there are other politicians uh, under Lukashenko, there are military leaders under Lukashenko, uh, you know, there are normal people who are living there under Lukashenko, and uh, it it's even if they are not opposing Lukashenko, uh, they still should think about possible Retaliation uh, in in case uh, Belarus would attack uh, Lithuania and and Poland, but but Putin's idea, uh, believe it or not, is very primitive. Uh, he he thinks that uh, if if Poland and Lithuania are attacked with nuclear weapons, it's actually this would prevent. Military assistance to Ukraine because it would not be possible to, you know, to to ship to ship weapons to Ukraine through Poland because mainly now it goes through Poland, of course. Uh, if you if you take uh, Poland uh, out of this uh, picture, then then the only way to assist uh, Ukraine would be through Romania and Moldova, and this is much more complicated uh i i guess my point is that there are s- some cases in history when political leaders are so blind with the uh absolutely crazy idea of destroying an opponent and in case of Hitler, for example this of course jews whose he was trying to to kill, to eliminate, then, then in the end, it's it damages them. So, so uh, in case of Jews and Hitler, uh, he actually spent so much, uh, you know, resources of German Reich dealing with uh, Jews. That uh, this was uh, this led actually to weakening his military abilities. Uh, that's what Putin is doing now with uh, with Ukraine and because of war in Ukraine, uh, he's so much into this idea of taking control of Ukraine that he basically doesn't understand that if he isolates Russia entirely from europe and that's precisely what's going to happen uh if uh, belarus uh would be involved in nuclear strike against poland and-, and Lithuania. right so then belarus of course would be entirely destroyed and russia would be entirely isolated from europe for for the next i don't know 100 years 200 years and then the only partner and friend and neighbor with whom Russia would talk, uh, might be only China. And then the Russian state uh, in, in, during the next decades would be uh, you know taken by China, because it's China is much bigger, much stronger. And as everybody knows, the Asian part of the Russian Federation is uh, is like a desert. It's completely, I mean, it's empty. People do not really live there. Uh, So he's betraying uh, Putin is betraying Russia the way Lukashenko is betraying uh, Belarus. And again, this is all done in order to prevent Western assistance. To Ukraine, because Putin thinks that the reason he is not winning in in Ukraine is because NATO is helping Ukraine. Well, NATO, of course, is helping Ukraine, but by the way, it is not obvious that without this help, uh, Putin would be able to take Ukraine. This this is not obvious, because he was planning to do this Uh, in in February when he started the war and he was planning to to take uh, Ukraine uh, in a matter of a couple weeks or one month and during that time there were no assistance from NATO, the assistance started to come Indeed, much, much later, and Putin still could not do anything with Ukraine, and he still couldn't take Ukraine. So this dream that, uh, or accusations, that he is uh, not able to win the war against Ukraine because NATO is helping Ukraine and because Russia, as they now say in Russia, you know, publicly and officially, that Russia is not fighting against Ukraine, uh, Russia is fighting against NATO, this idea by itself is completely crazy. But but again, this, they, they are not controlling situation anymore. They basically do not really know what to do the uh text which uh medvedev uh is the former president of russia by the way uh, is you know delivering to bu- public uh, are absolutely ridiculous and crazy uh, the latest uh, interview of patrushev published by uh russian press uh, is unbelievable collection of nonsense the latest uh, national doctrine uh, for foreign policy, which they just published like 42 pages documents. It's unbelievably primitive uh, uh, and stupid. And there is not a single word of truth there. So they really are not understanding the situation at all. And they really do not know what to do anymore. So. Uh, this idea of, um, you know, transferring nuclear weapons to to Belarus and firing from Belarus uh, for them might be uh, might sound as a very you know reasonable way uh, to to correct uh, the situation.
0: And that that's you've uh, anticipated really one of my questions there, which is, you know, watching recent footage of the Gorbachev era when he passed away even watching footage from the sort of 70s despite it being the height of the cold war it just strikes you that that was a more rational age in some respects so it strikes me that the the, the russia has undergone in the last couple of years an actual civilizational decline um to the point where as you say absolute fantastical nonsense can appear sensible does that also perhaps um, track the fact that Putin not only is getting physically frail, could he also have you know, been cognitively weakened by, by the illnesses? Because he doesn't seem the sort of quick-witted, so quite sophisticated verbally um, sort of politician that he was previously. And, of course, he's no longer appearing at Valdai and in, in public forums. We we no longer see exactly what sort of uh, you know, mental state he's in.
1: Well, he is probably not as, in a good shape at all. But the problem is, unfortunately, that I still do not uh, see him as a dictator. My point is that if you take Lukashenko down, uh, the entire regime uh, will collapse. Uh, If you take uh, Putin down, this will not necessarily happens because again, when when we see around him, people like Patrushev, who are basically saying the same, basically, right? Uh, we, uh, we understand that it's not that there is a hope for any opposition, even uh, within the, the FSB, for example, because some, some people still hope that, well, there are forces within the FSB who would understand that what Putin is doing is suicidal for for the entire regime and for the organization as well. And and I do think that this is suicidal, but at the same time, I do not really believe that there are forces there who would be able, not to understand this, they probably understand this, but who would be able to to collect enough power to deal with it and, I have to say, and this sounds—I uh, I don't understand that this sounds uh, probably a little bit naive, because uh, unfortunately in history sometimes worse things are happening, and good things which I expected to to be done are not done. But but I think uh, that in case of Belarus, uh, this is a time for for NATO to intervene. Otherwise, uh, we are risking to have uh, nuclear strikes. Uh, I mean, real nuclear strikes against Lithuania or Poland or both. And in case of Belarus, we have Lukashenko who lost elections in 2020. There was a government in exile formed this time uh, under tikhanovskaya who was uh, actually declared uh, by by opposition and by society as person who won elections Uh, we have a lot of young Belarusians, of course who left belarus after 2020 we have actually military uh, unit uh, which from belarus uh, which fights in ukraine today against uh, russian forces uh it's it's a kolonovsky uh military group uh so uh i uh, i i'm afraid that we have no time and i'm talking as a historian now not as a person who doesn't like fsb or putin or who would like to stop the war uh this is also true but uh but I'm talking as a historian. I, I believe there is no way uh, for for NATO but to intervene. And uh, this might be done as, by NATO as NATO. This might be done by uh, Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, and those Belarusians, which are already in Ukraine, uh, fighting once again against Russians. And Poland and Lithuania, they do understand that this is very dangerous what's happening it, it might be not seen this way in, in you know in in france or in germany but in poland uh they they do understand that this uh, danger is uh, real in lithuania they do understand that this danger is real that their country my countries might be destroyed by a nuclear strike uh, of uh irresponsible uh, Politician who is not a really politician anymore, Lukashenko. Uh, so I, I I believe that we are risking much less uh, if we try to prevent the strike. And to prevent the strike, uh, we need to intervene uh, into into Belarus and uh, and try to take uh, down Lukashenko and try to take uh, to change his regime. And I do not actually see any uh great difference between americans trying from time to time to change regime and some you know distant countries uh sometime very much successfully sometime without great success but nevertheless with certain level of success and, and i think it's time to do the same uh in in belarus otherwise uh again otherwise we are risking to have nuclear uh, nuclear confrontation uh, in uh, in Europe so that's that's what uh, that's what i would do if this would depend on me and basically i would you know uh, again try to deal with this problem preventably i do not think by the way that uh, that from military point of view the Uh, you know, the the invasion into Belarus might be a difficult operation. I do not think so. It's very questionable if uh, Belarusians would defend uh, Lukashenko. It's very questionable. I am talking about Belarusian army. It's very questionable if they would uh, support Russian troops. There are Russian troops there, but as we know now, Russian troops are not really doing great, and they were concentrated recently in Belarus in order to try to take Kyiv for the second time. And it seems to be that they're not ready to do this because this, you know, planned operation. Never happened. So I I do not really believe that you are going to have major military confrontation because of uh, this attempt to to change a regime in in Belarus. But this definitely definitely would guarantee us that we will avoid nuclear catastrophe.
0: I mean, there's there's, there's all sorts of unforeseen consequences, aren't they? And the last year has taught us that Putin who. Was a great opportunist, uh, a great opportunist, and, and extremely lucky in many of the adventures he embarked upon uh, in the the you know Crimea and so on. Uh, he actually came away um, victorious in, in in many of them. But the last year has shown that to an extent his judgment and luck has run out. Um, he said that NATO was a threat, and yet he's managed to double the uh, borders of NATO. He. Uh, said that Western Europe, uh, you know, militarily was a huge threat to Russia, when in fact its military had been run down to a near inoperable level, uh, as many of the uh, sort of military experts I've spoken to have talked about. And of course, now you're seeing Europe rapidly rearming, you're seeing Ukraine and Poland potentially going to be the largest, um, largest conventional powers in Europe. And and of course, uh, Putin talked about demilitarizing Ukraine, and yet has managed to donate thousands of vehicles and uh, pieces of ammunition to the Ukrainian army. You know, the biggest benefactor um, to Ukraine's military force is actually the uh, equipment that Russia abandoned. So he seems to have sort of lost his power of judgment, and every action he takes seems to turn into a, in, into the opposite of what he intended. Um, could it be the same in Belarus? Could you see the Belarus army... Perhaps revolting to prevent nuclear weapons being placed on their territory, um, or could you see Ukraine perhaps working with the Belarus military to to do that coup that you, you you talk about there? Because I fear that the uh, that the US is is still reluctant to get involved. They're still perhaps. Not supplying Ukraine to win, but merely to survive. Still, I, I don't know what your sense of the sort of Pandora's box that could be unleashed by by Putin's inept strategies.
1: Well, of course, the mo- the main problem uh, NATO has with uh, Putin uh, in this frame uh, of framework of the the Russian Ukrainian war is that they they're afraid very much to provoke Putin uh, and to creating nuclear conflict out of out of this conventional conflict and that's why uh NATO is helping ukraine uh, you know very slowly and still until today conducting this war as a defensive war so ukraine is basically you're right given weapons to uh, which helps them to defend themselves but Uh, NATO still does not give Ukraine offensive weapons, without which Ukraine is not able to win the war, because from a military point of view, uh, if you are waging the war as a defensive war, you are not able to win it, Uh, and for example, with the weapons which Ukraine is receiving from From their Western partners, Uh, they are not allowed to strike against Russian territory or Belarusian territory. So this uh, leads from, you know, to a ridiculous situation when Ukrainians are doing quite well when they're fighting against Russians, but they're not able to win this war because I even are not able to push russians from occupied territories right because russia is regrouping in belarus and in russia and then sending their troops well well again to back to to ukraine so uh, again this is slowly changing i have to say ukraine is getting more weapons and better weapons but the problem now is time and uh I'm afraid that we do not have a luxury of conducting this war for another year. In other words, uh, if if we would know that this year would continue the way it was continued uh, during the entire previous uh, 12 months period, uh, we would say that, well, sorry for the Ukraine, but at least this is not spreading further. Uh, this is staying within Russian, Belarusian, Ukrainian borders. I do not think that's what we are going to have for a very long time, uh, mainly because this uh, delivery of nuclear weapons to Belarus. And I and I tell you what, what Putin will do. He is now saying, of course, that this is, these are Russians who are uh, controlling these nuclear weapons. Now, he is saying this because if he... Uh, if he says otherwise, if he is just giving these nuclear weapons to, uh, to Belarusians, then he would be uh, breaking the, uh, his signature on 1995 non-proliferation a treaty. Uh, This also might mean that in the future, he could transfer nuclear weapons, who knows, to Iran, for example. But this this might be in the future. So he's saying that, well, we are just positioning nuclear weapons in Belarus, but we are going to be in control. I will tell you what's going to happen next. At one uh, particular day, he would inform the world that uh, you know Ukrainians uh, sabotaged uh, or took control of nuclear weapons and fired from those nuclear weapons, pretending that they are uh, Russians uh, to to provoke a conflict between Russia and, and uh, NATO. So they would never accept the blame. For, for the strike. That's what's going to happen next. So again, I I would uh, I would say that this is extremely dangerous to allow Putin to move nuclear weapons to, to, to Belarus. I do not know if there are any you know, negotiations or discussions uh, now are happening behind the scene. Uh, Probably, probably yes. Uh, But um, unfortunately, I'm afraid that this plan was uh, discussed with China as well. I do not think that the fact that uh, Lukashenko flew to Peking some time ago uh, you know, had nothing to do with this, and I do not think that uh, visit of C to Moscow recently again had nothing to do with this discussion. At, at least Putin basically announced about transfer of nuclear weapons to Belarus very soon uh, after she left, and they mentioned something about next hundred years of unbelievable history which both countries you know should wait for so uh i i think this plan was discussed uh, i think this is done with the approval and permission of uh, chinese government and uh, again china is i'm sure interested in having a uh, weak russia and that's precisely what putin is delivering to china and uh, so this might have some, you know, consequences for, as I mentioned, for Russia as well. But but mainly at this point, I think we should concentrate uh, on the risks which uh, this particular step of Putin uh, would create for Eastern Europe.
0: I mean, it seems extraordinary to me that she would go along with this, and earlier in the year. Uh, both the uh, Indian Premier and she seemed to give Putin a bit of a dressing down in public and seemed to set some kind of red lines around uh, nuclear conflict. I guess the scenario you've painted of a kind of false flag type uh, operation, maybe they would acquiesce to that. Is China here really thinking? Would it would it think of of taking that Russian territory? Wait until Russia is potentially weak, fragile, or even fragmented and falling apart, and then physically taking it? Or would they not have to do that? Would they simply have to take over the Russian economy um, and and do it sort of in a in a sort of more of a soft power uh, move? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, precisely. I um, my understanding is that China, at least un- until now, I do not know what might happen in the future. Never used uh, army for to achieve foreign policy uh, goals, uh, unlike uh, Russia, which uh, always would use army if they need to. To you know uh to achieve a certain uh, foreign policy objectives so uh china is different and i do not really expect china to 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 with russia and to take siberia but uh, there are other tools for china to do this and mainly economic tools and financial tools and again uh russia is very weak now as we know a war with ukraine a war with europe war with NATO, doesn't make uh, russia stronger at all and there is no way this would lead to to a stronger russia this is a this is an irony because you're you correct uh, what putin is doing his initial objectives uh of course, are very much different from what he's getting as a result. And the result is that uh, Russia is becoming weaker and weaker and weaker every day, and Russia is more and more and more isolated every day. And uh, this puts Russia in in extremely difficult position. When I'm afraid, it's true, the only friend or partner which Russia could uh, have now. Uh, The main one, of course, is China, there is also North Korea, there is also Iran, and that's it. This is basically all they might afford now. And the level of, you know, damaged, uh, which uh, Putin done to relations, which Russia had with Europe, is so much that uh, Russia probably is going to be isolated from Europe for a very, very, very long time. And, uh, you know, borders are still open. Uh, The amount of Russians uh, who left Russia is since uh, February of uh, 22. Uh, it is extremely high. You feel it when you go, you know, through the streets of Europe, European cities. You know, you, you see them in Poland, you see them in Lithuania, you see them in Germany, you see them everywhere. And these are Russians we, which were not there like a year ago. Uh, and this is a uh, Completely new phenomena. And uh, trust me, when we talk about immigration like this, this is uh, how to say uh, the, the, the best level of Russians. These are people who are more educated, and these are people who, uh, you know, manage to earn some money so they are able to emigrate. And, and those people are lost for Russia forever. So, again, the damage which is done by putin uh is extra order and uh the same probably now relates to belarus and i'm waiting with certain interest also in the interest of the wrong world probably now but as a historian uh whether some forces will rise in Belarus and will try to take Lukashenko down because what he's doing is suicidal for uh, Belarus as a nation, and uh, it's it's uh, it's surreal. What's happening now is surreal,
0: and of course, I mean Putin probably has partially some awareness of the damage he's doing despite the fact he's on this suicidal trajectory he must realize that he has weakened the Russian military the state the finances even though he doesn't care about these things he must have some awareness of this going on so he knows that this is not working we know it's not working we know it's absolutely insane and of course there was a recording. Uh, made available last week between Yosef Prigozhin and Farhad Ahmedov, Um, one a music producer uh, and the other one a former billionaire. Um, and this fascinating half-hour conversation was recorded. Uh, lots of sort of expletives in there. They also uh, describe Putin, I think, as toxic and a toxic dwarf. I think is one of the one of the phrases from that. But these are two people in public who support the regime, who support the uh, the military operation. Behind the scenes, they are openly saying that Putin has destroyed the country, destroyed the economy, destroyed, of course, their personal pleasures, their ability to access their yachts and their uh, villas and all this kind of stuff. So it's, um, you know, they're not necessarily uh, moaning on behalf of the Russian people. They probably don't care either. But there is clearly then in the ruling class uh, this consciousness that that this is disastrous war and disastrous trajectory they're on. And yet, you know, no one, uh is is uh you know trying to take over the helm well
1: but here's the problem they're rich this is true but they're not part of the ruling class that's the problem the problem was that the only ruling class in russia now is the putin and the fsb and this is the only institution which rules country and there is there are no other groups no other organizations nothing else uh, this is a problem. So, those people, uh, and this was, you know, I was listening to this in Russian and the, the language which they were using was very, uh, how to say, unusual, you do not usually see, uh, use those words, let's so put it this way. You usually do not use words which they use when they were describing situation and and Putin as well. Uh, so, but, but the problem is that they understand that there is nothing what they can do and it's true, and it's true. We we think that those uh, rich Russians uh, who are either living in, abroad or or in Russia, that they have a uh, influence over Putin. They do not. He has influence still because he could take all of the money. He could, you know, take it little by little. What he probably does, uh, but but they do not any any. They do not have any influence, and Putin. I'm not sure that he actually understands that his he he, this battle is lost. Uh, I think he's in denial. I think Paterchuk is in denial. I think Medvedev is in denial. I think Lavrov is in denial. They really do not understand. They do not understand what went wrong. And I and I will I would tell actually what. what went wrong. What went wrong is that uh, Zelensky refused to capitulate in day number one. That's what went wrong, because the whole idea was that the entire world, not just Zelensky, that everybody would capitulate, because everybody would be afraid of war or nuclear war or Russia using nuclear weapons or Russia turning off a pipeline with gas to germany they basically were not not planning to have a war they were planning to accept capitulation from one country after another country and this brilliant quote-unquote plan was ruined by Zelensky and Ukrainian people who, who who decided basically that there is no way they're going to to surrender to, to Russia. And then, uh, and then you have country after country, like Poland first, Lithuania second, etc., who were under Russian occupation, who knew quite well what does it mean to be under Russian occupation again, and who basically said to everybody, including partners in NATO, that never again, that it's never again that they would allow Russia to, to control Eastern Europe. And I, I think that's how it all started. So, you know, after one year, this war, I would say moves through three stages, and while we might be now at the fourth stage, the the nuclear stage, and this probably is the last one, uh, when in the beginning, everybody wanted to stop this war and was ready to stop this war through Ukrainian capitulation. This did not happen. And then you had people like Macron trying to end this war, through partial capitulation and partial surrender of territories to to Putin. And this, of course, did not work well. It didn't work because Ukrainians uh, didn't want to, to surrender their territories, but it also did not work because Putin wanted the entire Ukraine. Uh, So, then we we came to the third phase, and the day when this phase started was when France and Germany and Americans finally decided to supply tanks to to Ukrainian army. Again, tanks probably are not there yet, but the moment when... uh, you know, the, the entire NATO structure realized that the only way to stop this war, because again, everybody wants to stop this war. That, this is true. That the only way to stop this war is through defeat of Russian uh, Federation. I think this moment happened when, you know, France and uh, Germany and Americans uh, gave permission to, to supply tanks. And uh, and now I am afraid we are at the fourth level of this war, when we have to deal with this uh, extremely risky situation of uh, you know, of moving our Russian uh, nuclear weapons to to Belarus, and and I think this is the last stage of this war, and I think we uh, if we do what we have to do, what's correct thing to do, where uh, we could end this war very quickly as well. Not only we would liberate from the Belarus, what is important because of strategic uh, territory, which Belarus you know, has, right? Because it allows Russia to to have borders uh, with uh, Eastern Europe, and it allows Russia to use this territory for new advances against Ukraine, and for possible advances against Eastern Europe. Uh, So, not only we uh, return Belarus to to the family of, uh, you know, European states, uh, but we also actually win the war uh against uh this you know ukrainian war against russian occupation because from military point of view it doesn't make any sense to wage this war uh the way it's done through east uh, from the east of uh russia and from the south of russia deep into ukraine because uh, russia was not able to take donbas for eight years the war, uh, you know, for Donbas uh, started in 2014 and never ended. Uh, we have now uh, a fighting uh, against Ukrainian and Russian troops on the south and on the east, which is very similar to, uh, you know, first war uh, battles which uh, Germans conducted against uh, French uh, army and French against Germans. Basically, it's a positional war where you could not actually gain any victories. And uh, to have this war without ability for Putin to strike against Kiev Again, make no sense. So, if we take Belarus uh, from Putin, then we are winning the war. And this is the, the, the quickest way to do it, the easiest way to do it. And, uh, the, the you know, this might be done with much less blood than any other options.
0: And yes, maybe Kaliningrad needs to be reabsorbed as well and take that last little sort of defensive chunk out of Europe well, as
1: well. Well, well, that's that's actually what I usually uh, tell when uh, people discuss the borders of the new Russia. And I think that uh, no one is going to take any territories from Russia. No one needs it. This is this was never done, indeed. Russia actually, over the years of history, took uh, pieces of territory from any of its neighbors. Right, there is not a single one who did not lose territory to Russia. But uh, but the status of Kaliningrad uh, probably uh, should be uh, you know reconsidered uh, because you you are not uh, you you shouldn't allow to have Russia to have this uh, you know. Island uh, inside uh, Europe, uh, from which uh, Russia, from time to time, uh, would try to to fire into into your uh, territory. So, uh, but it's uh, I, I'm sure this uh, will be discussed and this issue might be approached. But first, uh, we need to to stop this war. But again, to stop this war means to win this war. Uh, and to stop this war uh, means to take back uh, Belarus, so Russia would not have ability to use this strategically important territory for further uh, aggressive advances.
0: Uh, absolutely. The last question, because we've been incredibly uh, generous with your time, and, and this is harking back to what you mentioned about the FSB. I mean, in one of our previous conversations, we talked about really to an extent how strong collectively the FSB and the GRU has been, um, certainly in the Soviet uh, period and, and later. But you are now sort of hinting that they don't have uh, any influence over events. And collectively, uh, you know, is is the sort of uh, FSB quite a, a weak sort of class or, or, or organization at this point?
1: Well, uh, it's uh, when it started in two thousand. Uh, I'm I'm sure that Putin was just you know j- just a simple a lieutenant colonel of the FSB who was chosen. To to be the next president of Russia, and uh, the the FSB again, the you know the state security exists uh, in uh, in Soviet Russia since December of nineteen seventeen. Uh, today, this is actually the oldest organization which exists in Russia. Uh, it's uh, more than hundred years old. Uh, it's uh, it's very powerful organization. We still do not really know how powerful this is because we really do not even know how many people work for this organization. We might be talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, this organization has uh, a certain polybureau like in the old Soviet days. Uh, it's called Collegium of the FSB. You know, in the old days, it was Collegium of the KGB, et cetera. This is like a politburo, and recently Putin was reporting to it. Uh, it's giving reports to this structure from time to time. So this is an official tra- structure. I do not really know, and this is the question, how powerful it is now. I'm quite sure that this was a structure which was choosing uh, Putin as president, for example. But uh, are they able to take him down today? I really do not know because after 20 years in power, uh, Putin probably became more powerful. In addition to this, in Russia, uh, usually when you rule for 20 plus years, uh, if you die, like this happened with uh, Stalin or with Brezhnev, the entire structure collapses. And this is a danger for the FSB as well as the institution. So they probably would like to see uh, Putin uh, go, uh, but they really are not sure that the entire structure would survive his absence and and probably not. So at one point he is not a dictator, but at the same time, uh, his death or whatever, retirement, could bring the collapse of the entire system, and it would be good for you know, for Ukrainians, for Europe, for 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 everybody else. But for the FSB as the institution, this may not be good at all. Because who knows uh, what those people who would replace you know Putin, who knows what they would decide to do with the FSB? Because the structure, it was dangerous. You know, since 1917, it was dangerous over this entire Soviet history, but it became extremely dangerous after 1991 and especially after 2000, when they started to rule country without any political control. Because prior to 91, they existed under the political control of the communist party so it was not an ideal situation but at least there was a kind of political control now they do not uh, have this control now for the first time in history really for the first time in history we have a situation when uh the fsb the state security is running the country and not just the country, they're also running the army, they're also running, you know, the, the nuclear arsenal of this uh, country. That's why it became extremely dangerous. And we see now that they are losing control, that they are they are com- in complete denial of understanding that what they're doing is not just wrong, but uh, very uh, un- practical, that they're damaging themselves, they're damaging the country, they are ruining everything on the way. And and they're not able to stop. They're not able to stop, they're not able to turn back, they're not able to reconsider policies, they're not able to accept mistakes. That's that's why I I think they themselves uh, put, you know, force themselves into a corner
0: from which there is no exit. Well, Yuri, you've painted a, a a terrifying scenario, one which we potentially have the power to avert in the way that you've described. Um, I think this discussion is going to generate a lot of commentary, which is good. It's the idea. We want people to sort of think about this and think about how we can carry on uh, supporting Ukraine. Um but I'm incredibly grateful to you for spending so much time to unpack the issues. I know, as we were talking about earlier, you've done many, many interviews already today. And uh, it must be must be exhausting. But I think your insights are hugely appreciated by the audience and, uh, of course, by myself as well. So thank you so much thank for appearing thank again. Thank you
1: for the opportunity. I'm happy to talk to you anytime, you know.